All right. We're continuing with conversations with Yogananda. We're on number 415. Keep your mind always engaged in serving God, whether meditating or serving Him through others. An idle mind is the workshop of the devil. I don't think Master that. I don't think that's original with Master. <laughs> you know, idle hands are the devil's workshop. I've heard an idle mind is the devil's workshop. But it's interesting. And the next question is also about the devil. Um, so I'm just going to go right into the next one because it it's more interesting. Four sixteen said, "Is there a devil, Master?" Someone asked. Many people say he exists only in the mind. The Christian science teachings even insist God does not know evil. Master said, God must be very stupid <laughs> if he doesn't know something so obvious, was the Master's wry comment. He then conceded that the belief, though mistaken, was not unreasonable. I used to think, he said, that Satan was only a figment of the mind. Since then, however, I have realized from personal experience and now add my testimony to that of countless others before me that Satan does exist. He is a conscious force and works constantly to keep mankind bound to delusion. <clears throat> well, let's see. I, I think I'll just read 417 too because they're all of a piece. Let's see. And I think it's important. Is Satan in that case a part of God? Was the person's next question. If God made everything, how can Satan exist apart from him? There are not two absolute causes in the universe, was Master's response. Satan is a part of God's drama. He is necessary to it, as the villain is necessary in a stage play. Evil is the veil that conceals God, the magnet that tries to draw the mind away from him, the magnet that tries to draw the mind away from him. Good is that which helps to make God's hidden reality manifest, like the breeze blowing away the smoke that hides a fire. Within the realm of duality, however, both good and evil exist. God... <coughs> The Supreme Spirit, excuse <coughs> me, God, the Supreme Spirit, is beyond them both. Being omniscient, omniscient, he knows them both equally, the evil as much as the good. Goodness, however, reveals more clearly to the mind the existence of bliss, which, since it is above relativity, may be described as goodness absolute. The satanic force, on the other hand, being conscious, tries deliberately to hide from man's gaze that ever-blazing light of divine bliss. This whole teaching about Satan and the devil is just absolutely essential to the path of self-realization, even though we don't like it. He goes on in the next chapter to, I mean, the next one, which I'll read in a moment. Just a moment, let me just make sure. Uh, and he talks about the Christian science idea that evil doesn't exist, so, but that's, ever, that's slightly peripheral to the, the first point. So Master had to talk more about Christian science because in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 
when he was teaching, it was a much bigger movement and much, much, many more people were involved and it was very popular and it had a huge influence on the way people think. Now, when we read it, very few people are involved in Christian science by comparison because all denominations in America, all churches in America have become back the back seat, have taken a back seat. We've become a very secular society. When I was growing up, um, there would be no uh, organized youth activities on Sunday morning because it was assumed everyone went to church. And nowadays, all the soccer leagues, everything, they just play right through Sunday morning. Nobody even thinks about it. And it just, I mean, that, that alone tells the whole story because if there's any point at which church is important, it would be when people have children. And now children play soccer on Sunday morning. Um, so now to go back to this. Master starts by talking about the idle, ha- idle hands or the devil's workshop. And then it goes to, into the question of the devil. And the, relative, the, the operative word that is the most important in the beginning part of this is Master talking about Satan being a conscious force. I mean, that, that's sort of the important idea that we have to understand because what that means is you can't just make up your mind to ignore him and decide that he doesn't exist, <clears throat> decide he's not relevant, decide you don't want to think about it. Because if it's a conscious force, it's not a question of whether we believe it or not. It's just a question of whether it exists. It's like saying, I don't believe in gravity. You know, you can sort of have all the opinions you like about the fact that we're not held to the earth but you're not going to levitate just because you don't think gravity is a real force. People would say, I don't believe in death, but death is there. It's just going to happen. I don't believe in old age. Some people say they don't believe in reincarnation, but that's harder to prove. But old age and death is just right here, and it just doesn't matter whether you uh, think about it or not. It's just going to be part of your reality. So, what, what Master is ex- expressing here, and the reason it's so important for the spiritual path, is that effort is required. And, and we get confused by that because um, the delusion of Kali Yuga is, is personified by the emphasis in the Christian teaching on the crucifixion of Jesus, on the suffering of his death, Um, more so than on the freedom of his resurrection. Of course, the resurrection plays a part in it, but the suffering of Jesus is considered, um, is is contemplated certainly as much, if not more. And then suffering becomes sort of an inherent um, part of the idea of spirituality, that we are here to deprive ourselves of every pleasurable thing and instead to commit ourselves to suffer with Christ. And I know that's a, a generalization. Swamiji, um, when he was writing the Revelations of Christ book, he shared that manuscript with a man who was a, 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 um, a Christian clergyman. And it was also part of our path, but, but had, a, a, had a difficult time sometime reconciling the two realities. And... Swami wrote in a general way about certain attitudes that are prevalent in Christianity. And this man uh, argued with Swami 
because there were exceptions to those generalities. And Swamiji um, just explained that he wasn't generalizing. He was talking about the, the essence, the essential qualities that were pertinent for the discussion that he was doing. And by no means was he saying that everybody followed those. So the essential quality of Christianity is often, very often, the crucifixion. The, the crucifix, Jesus hanging on the cross, is like a, a, just a profound Christian image, especially in Catholicism, but all the way through. You go into churches and you know, there's, um, there's a, a man hanging on a cross who looks like he's dead. And really, if you just walk into it, as they say, if you, if you look at things through the eyes of a Martian, if you just arrived on the planet and had no context, and you go into this huge building, and what you see in the front is this sometimes beautifully made statue of a man hanging in agony on the cross, you would naturally wonder what the heck is going on in this place. I remember I was in Europe, and um, I saw a, a, a crucifix. There was the, the statue, the, the big cross like that. But Jesus was basically standing up on that cross. He wasn't bent over and he wasn't uh, dead looking. So he was, he was extended like this and he was pinned to the cross. But his posture was one of triumph rather than, than one of death and defeat. Which it was, very, it was a very inspiring image because it brought in all the elements. But it emphasized the part of, I mean Jesus looked like he was risen rather than crucified in that picture. And in the Festival of Light, which Swami wrote um, for us to, as our, as our ritual every Sunday, he says, whereas in the past, suffering and sorrow was the key to man's redemption, for us now that payment has been exchanged for calm acceptance and joy. Thus may we understand that pain is the fruit of self-love, whereas joy is the fruit of love for God. So in that, in that simple phrase that we repeat over and over every time we do the festival, he's trying to turn us away from this Kali Yuga idea that the way we make progress is that we suffer. And if we're not suffering, we must not be doing enough for God. And, and it's a very difficult path to embrace. And it's also, it's all focused on... Um, freedom after death rather than freedom now, which is also um, not exactly the same as Sanatana Dharma. I was speaking to someone recently and they were um, in the, with the impression that it was a spiritual attitude, were telling me just how eager they are to um, be done with the world. Um, but I could feel it was not a transcendence. It was a desire to be rescued. And that's what I said. You're not, you're not really rising into freedom. You're hoping that somebody's going to just come and get you and make it easier for you. And she was talking about dying. She was a woman of about my age, just talking about the end of life. That was when Swami asked Master the question, which might even be in this book, you know, if spiritual realization comes when we no longer desire anything of this world, um, wouldn't suicides be liberated? Because it's the ultimate repudiation. And Master 
I mean, he didn't laugh, but he sort of, I mean, maybe Swami even said he did laugh. Suicide's not a subject you want to laugh about. But what he said was, there must also be a positive longing for God. It's not sufficient to be sick of this world. You must also recognize that there's some place to go with your longing. It's not just throwing this away and then hoping that that attitude of complete rejection will end up in freedom. But often there's a degree of unwillingness to face into the, the trials. And Master talks about this a little later in a few sections later. Now, where, where all of this matters is as we come into Dwapar Yuga, there, there has been, what, what is happening in Dwapar Yuga is people are making their own experience the criteria of their beliefs and their own experience the definition of their spiritual life. A lot of people will say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And what that usually means is I don't follow any denomination. I don't follow any particular dogma. But in myself, I think of myself as a spiritual person. I think of life in a spiritual way. Through Kali Yuga, where everything was form, the dogmas were very important. The dogmas defined everything and, and you know, just massively defined things. As, uh, in the Catholic churches especially, you know, where the power was a lot during that time, you know, it's just like the, the, you could be damned to hell. And, I mean, that was super serious. If you made some kind of a mistake, you were, you were facing eternal damnation. And so people became very panicky to uh, uh, mitigate whatever curse from God they had pulled down upon their head. And so they would do penances and, uh, austerities and all kinds of things trying to balance whatever error they'd made so they wouldn't be condemned. But as we move out of that form-defined era, um, form era um, among other things, not only are religions as a whole losing respect and losing regard, but denominations are losing regard. People no longer come to town and look for a Methodist or a Congregationalist church if they look for a church at all, they look for a place that inspires them. And so they're, they may still be wanting the form, that form, they may even be wanting that dogma, but they're also looking for an experience in the moment that's uplifting. So what all this means is the, um, the opposite, the, the balancing force against this idea that what God wants from us is to suffer and the more we suffer, the more spiritual we are, is that God wants us to be happy. God wants us to feel good. God wants us to enjoy his creation. And so we, we start moving into the more we're enjoying it, the more we're of God. The more self-denial that we have, the less we're of God. And as happens with these uh, reactive movements, you know, that, that neither of them quite has the whole truth. But in the reactive movement against suffering and sorrow as the coin of man's redemption, we just say it, that even the, the very idea that we have to do battle against our own inclinations, that idea has been thrown out too. And so it's just, if it feels good, that's what God wants from you. If it feels good, it, I mean, there, in, even in the yoga movement, this 
infested the yoga movement, there was a very, very, very popular wave uh, behind a certain teacher. And his teaching was marvelously popular because it was, um, let's see, just do whatever you want to do and just call it spiritual. <laughs> because it's making you happy, isn't it? And God wants you to be happy. If God is bliss and you're feeling good, then that must be what this is. So sex, drugs, drinking, you know, like why not? Because it makes you feel good and that's what God wants from you. So posited against that is what Master's trying to strike a balance here. Um, In the understanding that we don't just sort of collapse into our subconscious um, desire-filled nature and in the, the courage to collapse, uh, find our way to God. That there, there really is, um, there really are two forces pulling against us. And that's because, and you know, of course, this has been described in other sections of this book. You, the actual um, source of true happiness is not as obvious. It's, it, it's not, you don't just look at this world and see it. And it, it, takes, it takes sufficient experience, and that experience has to come to us over many incarnations, where we test um, many different theories about where our happiness comes from. And, you know, already in one incarnation, all of us, if we look back, we can see that we've tested already. Most of us have, if, if we've, you know, if we've lived at all. I mean, some people's lives remain... Either they simply don't have any karma like that at all, or they're, they're, they just follow a very narrow track. But most of us have been through, in this day and age, we go through experiences faster because we're in a transition time between yugas and changes, uh, changes rampant. So all of us can tell that we've already experimented with certain attitudes, with certain life conditions, with you know certain experiences, whatever they might be. And they don't have to be wildly dramatic for us to just realize that one didn't work as well as this one works. I can see from, you know, having held that attitude for a really long time that it was unfortunate because now it, I can see that it doesn't bring me the happiness I thought it did. Indulging my annoyances, indulging my, uh, you know, karmic disinclinations toward people or whatever they might be, um, uh, uh, my unkindnesses, whatever they were, it's, it, it, it doesn't really bring me happiness. I thought it would, but it didn't. And we multiply that over many incarnations, and we gradually begin to realize that there, there really are choices. And those choices uh, are not so easy to find um, because there's smoke covering the fire. That's just what, how Master put it, that God's calling us is like the wind that blows the smoke away so that we can see the fire. And Satan is the, for, is the wind that blows the smoke over the, over the clear vision, so we really can't see very clearly. And it's a dynamic that's happening, it's so, that, so that something tries to, up, you know, to obscure our thinking. I had a recent experience when I was, I was very clear-minded about something that I needed to do that was difficult to do. It was not, it was not something I would have... I wanted to have happen, but it was just something that needed to happen. And I was very clear about what I was doing. And then it was, it was just like 
all of a sudden this sort of sentimental disinclination to go to battle um, came into me. And I, I could feel it, like a, I felt it exactly like a conscious force just telling me, oh, you don't have to try so hard. Why are you working so hard at this? Why don't you just let things flow? If they just flow, they'll be fine. And I knew they wouldn't, absolutely, but I could just feel it coming over me. And it wasn't the devil in his uh, costume at all. It was a force that was weakening my will, just weakening my will when I knew perfectly well what I was supposed to do. It was just persuading me that I didn't have to do it like that. And, and, and that's how simple it is. When Master says, I used to think it was a figment of my own mind, but I can add my testimony that Satan is a conscious force. It's just that much of a conscious force. Now, you know, it, it can be argued that it's your own subconscious, that it's all just aspects of yourself. You know, that side of it is less important than the fact that we are doing battle. Because the, the right understanding of the spiritual path has to include, I think, the active, conscious, downward-pulling force. Because otherwise, we, we just go with the flow, and at the end of a lifetime, we're nowhere. Just before, this, uh, uh, before the cameras went on, I was talking with some of the people here about the fact I'm, I'm recording this in the Ananda Palo Alto Temple, and that's where almost all of these classes have been recorded from. And we've had this temple since 1994. We've been actually, Ananda's had a work in this area since like 81. So it's, you know, it's quite a long time. This is 20, 40 years almost that we've been, not quite, that we've been working to bring people to master through this location. We have a, we're, we're very well established. We run a wonderful school. Our temple is beautiful. We have a community. Um, we, we've been running East-West Bookshop for all these years. We've raised, you know, a generation and a half of children, right, you know, through our community. So by any measure, you know, a lot has happened. Uh, roots, deep roots have been sunk. And beautiful flowers have, have come, you know, on the branches. But we're still very, very small, relatively speaking small. You know, there's no, a hundred, if there's a hundred people at a Sunday service, which would be our biggest event, you know, that's very impressive. We had like, I think we might have had 150 for Easter lunch or 130 or something like that. It was a very large number. I mean, 130 is a large number for a small group, but 130 is not a large number when you're thinking of a worldwide movement. And Self-Realization Fellowship and YSS in India, Ananda in India, Ananda in Europe, you know, it, it adds up. Um, there's thousands of master's disciples. I'll just think of Ananda. You know, we have, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of followers. Millions of people, literally millions, from all, almost all countries in the world come onto our websites. I myself, I looked at, um, I looked at my four-part chakra series on the YouTube. It has 90,000 views. It's a large number. Most of my talks stabilize at a few hundred. There's a few odd bodkins that go up into a few thousand sometimes. But mostly it's a few hundred and that's where it sits. Um, compared to the population of the planet, you know, it's just, it's very few. Because it's not time 
for this teaching to really have its day yet. Christianity, it was 300 years before Christianity really um, was a globally recognized force. But the point is, it's all about individuals and it's all about individual souls. And I, in the discussion that we were having before we started, I was saying that, because I've lived here in this area, I've been part of helping to establish this work for most more than 30 years that we've been here. And every year on Master's birthday, which is January 5th, we've had this tradition of renewing our vows. Um, a few people take a vow for the first time, and there's multiple vows. There's just the vow of a truth seeker. There's the vow of a disciple. And then we have two um, orders, religious orders, so to speak, within Ananda. One is essentially for householders, and the other is for those who live in community. And within the, the second one, there's a life vow and a novice vow. So that's what is about five different vows. And each of them represents a deeper level of experience, a deeper level of commitment. You know, in the, in the course of Ananda, in between there is the taking of Kriya initiation, but it's not active on, on January 5th. Each of them represents, on a person's part, a deeper and deeper realization that I'm looking for truth, that Master is my guru, that this is my path, that Ananda is my family, and that I am able, I have the karmic freedom, some people do, to, to essentially become a monastic within Ananda. With, with all the power that that would have of any monastic order that you would grow. Some of you are aware of the Naya Swami order, which is, but it's parallel, I'm not talking about that. So over the course of 30 years, maybe 25, we've been doing this on January 5th, I, w I would watch people take their vows, and sometimes I would... Um, help administer them. But I would just watch, and I would watch different people year after year standing up and affirming or taking a different vow, a deeper vow, a deeper commitment. Or I would watch the same people repeating the same vow, but with a richer tone in their voice and a clearer look in their eye and a, a deeper sense of devotion when they went to the altar to offer the flower and to offer themselves into that. And, and it, it became for me, not that I actually needed a, a, a ruler to measure, but it became a, a, a watershed moment for me, a, a tide coming in sort of moment, to just sort of see what was happening to people. And of course, these are not strangers. This is not me just going into some you know, odd place. These are people, these are my brothers and sisters that I've lived with and, and gr grown up with is the word I want to use, except we were all adults. We're getting to the point where we're growing old together and new people who have just come in. And I've just watched individual lives be totally changed. And it's so vividly clear to me that it's, it's, it's a soul journey we, we can have an organization, we have to have a temple. Some people kind of speak dismissively of the form of things, but for heaven's sakes, this is the material plane. You have to have a form, you have to have some structure in order to create the energy pattern. And it's the energy pattern that changes people, but you have to have a container for that energy pattern 
here in the material plane. So, but it isn't how many people take a class or how many people come to church or, you know, how many Kriya bonds you have or anything like that. It's that individual souls are waking up to God and becoming ever deeper in that. And that's actually, that's all that's going on. There's nothing else going on. We're not trying to populate the earth with little Kriya bonds, you know. We're not encouraging families to have as many children as possible so that we can take over the planet with little self-realizationists. I mean, none of that makes any difference at all. It's, it's one by one, souls are called to God. And the very nature of the path of self-realization is there's no way, it, it doesn't happen in a group. It just, it can't happen in a group. A group of self-realizationists can come together to support each other in that process, but merely being in that group um, only makes you deeper if it makes you deeper. Being in the group will make you deeper if you use the satsang and use the magnetism to make you deeper. So all of that is to say to come back to this whole um, thing that we're talking about, about this conscious force, you know, there is this conscious force that, that wants to obscure from our sight and from our hearts and from our intuition and from our minds the pathway to freedom. And if we want to be on that pathway to freedom, we have to make a deep and conscious decision. Because otherwise, that force will just keep blinding us and it'll just keep pulling us away. And in this particular culture, at this particular time, no one will think there's anything even slightly odd about that. I I had this experience. My parents were supportive of what I was doing at Ananda, but if I had ever left, they would have been just as happy to have me closer to them and more back in the fold. It wasn't like it wasn't like they understood what I was doing and therefore recognized the importance of it. They didn't disrespect it, but they didn't I would just say they really just didn't understand on a deep level. So at one point, and this was in the seventies, I think, yes, in the seventies. I had something had happened. There'd been some big project, and I I don't quite remember the exact details. It doesn't matter. But I had gone back after it was finished, and I'd gone back to visit my parents who lived in Southern California, and I lived in Northern California at Ananda Village. And I was pretty exhausted, and there was also some kind of a karmic completion happening. And I got very sick. And I, I I don't get sick at all very often. And I got a very high fever, which is also very unusual for me. And, you know, in in retrospect, it was all happening for a reason. But I I was, I had this, this fever was so high that when it came down to 103, I felt, I felt so much better. (laughs) I thought I was really, I didn't have a thermometer and I was, I was so, it didn't last that long, but I, I remember being curled up like in a fetal position in the bed and I had to remain curled up because I was convinced that if I relaxed at all, uh, my each of my legs and both of my arms they would all go in four directions and I would just be I would just be split apart into four pieces and the only way I could keep myself together was to remain curled up which is called delirium <laughs> but I didn't realize that I think as the fever began to come down I began to remember 
that I didn't always remain in a curled up position and yet my body had remained intact. So I very, very carefully began to experiment, discovered that in fact I could stretch out. I remember that I hadn't eaten for several days and my mother, being a mother, was quite worried. I wasn't worried because I knew, I knew about fasting and so on. But finally, just to appease her, I remember I ate one strawberry and that seemed like just this huge intake of food, you know, which just, I see mother, I'm eating, you know. But just that just gives you an idea of how ill I was. But when I gradually started getting better, I went as, and my family had the setup that many families had where you can sit on the couch and watch television together. So I just remember sitting on the couch and we were watching something on television. I mean, we weren't, the family wasn't fanatical, but it was something that happened. So I was just sitting there and, I, and all of a sudden I felt like this, um, something like, that looked like a spider web to me. This spider web that was connected to me and that, that was crossing the state of California and was connecting me to Ananda Village. And because I had just been pulled so far out of my normal state by this illness, I could feel that that thread was there. It was still there. But I, it's hard to say because I don't see visions but I, I felt that there were demons bouncing on it, that they were just bouncing on it, trying to rip it, just trying to break me from there. And this temptation started coming over me to say to my parents, I think I'll just stay here. I don't think I'll go back to Ananda. And I knew that if I just spoke those words into the room, my parents would say, well, that would be lovely. You know, they would just completely support me and think it would be a marvelous thing for me to do and I could move back into my old room, you know, who knows what I would do? And simultaneously, as I saw how happy they would be, I could imagine the consternation at Ananda Village where I was a, a fixture. I, you know, I was part of what was going on there. And if I just called and said, I think I'll just stay in Los Angeles and live with my parents, there would be a counterwave, you know, and they would probably call and they might even come to see. I mean, it wasn't the cult. I could have left easily if I wanted to, but they would have come to find out what had happened to me? Why would I have changed my mind? But the demons were bouncing on the string. And the demons were telling me that, it, that your parents would be so happy and they've been so nice to you. It's so comfortable here. You could find a job. There's all kinds of things you could do. They were just saying it all to me. It all sounded so reasonable. Just like the other experience I was saying a few minutes ago of when I knew I had this commitment I had to carry out, but it was not a pleasant commitment. And just this feeling, well, you don't really have to do that. That's a lot of work. You know, it would just be easier if you just didn't. And so this is, you know, last week I was talking a lot about what is intuition and what is not intuition. And I, I gave many reasons why intuition is hard to understand, but one of them is because of the devil. And I know that's not a popular thing to say, but I like to speak of the devil because I like to know that this isn't just coming from me. This isn't just me talking to me. There's actually a conscious force. And simultaneously, there's also this divine force that's, that's pulling me. As I sat there, you know, the, what had anchored me to Ananda Village, what had spun that spider web, was my perception of, of the, the potential for bliss that that life would give me. And that was also a force that had pulled me, powerfully compelled me, to embrace this life and to hold to it. But then there was this other one. This is, 
And, and we, we just have to be vigilant. This is where this started with, I read three in a row here, but the first one was, keep your mind always engaged in serving God. Whether you're meditating, meaning whether you're experiencing him alone inside yourself, or whether you're serving others and serving God by serving others, because an idle mind is the workshop of the devil. And a lot of times, jokingly, when I, I see people do things, I think, you know, they need more meaningful work, or they need to take up a creative hobby. You know, they have too much time on their hands. And a lot of times, people do get themselves in a lot of trouble, because they have too much time to think. They have too much time to ask, what do I want, what do I want, what do I want? And the devil will come in to that space and try to talk to you about what you want, which is not always most uh, the thing that is most wholesome for you. So that's why seva, service, selfless service, is a, such a fundamental part of the spiritual path because when we're actively giving out our energy and when we're actively engaged in finding creative ways to help other people, there's not as much space for the, 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 the dark force to come in and pull us away. And, and so we stay busy. There was a woman at Ananda. Swami kept her busy all the time. And a friend of hers said to him, you know, don't you think that's, that this so-and-so, this woman, should take a day off? She never takes a day off. Swami's response, I know what's best for her, is what he said. Because in fact, whenever that woman had free time, as soon as she had an idle mind, the devil got into it, made her feel unhappy, unappreciated, depressed. But when she was serving, she was, she was uplifted and giving and very contented. But as soon as she let her mind go vacant, her mind did not go in a wholesome direction. Now, over years, and it often does take years, you know, the experience of giving and the joy of giving and the experience of of constantly redirecting our attention, in the case of that woman, in the case of myself, it's like suddenly you get the upper hand and you don't have to be active all the time because the inclination to believe the devil has been um, defeated. Now that doesn't mean he never revisits you in another form, but you can. you don't have to be as afraid or as it, we're just using her as an example. You don't have to worry that uh, to not let your mind go idle for a moment. But if your mind, if your mind deceives you when you let it go idle, don't let it go idle. Don't think, oh, I should take time off. Oh, I should be by myself. I should relax. Pay attention to the quality of your experience. And if it just leaves you vulnerable, then don't leave yourself vulnerable. It's just much too dangerous. I mean, I wasn't going to stay with my parents. I was going to go back to Ananda, and I did. But it was startlingly vivid and attractive to have quit at that point. Not, not, not attractive enough for me to actually do it, but startlingly vivid, considering my inclination for Ananda and my disinclination for the life that I would have had if I'd stayed with my parents. And the recent one, too, considering how clearly I understood what my dharma was, I was really impressed by the force that was beginning to come over me and how persuasive it was. 
was just so persuasive. This is what happens. This is what happened to Krishna, to Arjuna, at the battle of Kurukshetra. If you if you see the Bhagavad Gita in the context of the whole Mahabharata, which is not necessary to, but in this in this respect, because the Gita is they're they're on the eve of battle. It's cousins at war. Arjuna is the key warrior who's going to win for the side of righteousness, the Pandava side. Krishna is his charioteer. And on the eve of battle, Arjuna loses his will to fight. And he unstrings his bow, which symbolically is a straight spine and an uplifted chest. That's the string and the bow itself. And so he unstrings his bow. He loses his determination to to meditate and find God. Now the context of the Mahabharata is it just goes on and on and on and on and on of all the ways that that the Pandavas, led by their eldest brother Yudhishthira, did everything they possibly could before they finally went to war. So after all of that experience, that Arjuna was still subject to, to unstringing his bow is, is just like, it's extraordinary demonstration of the power of the obfuscating force, which is the devil, to try to persuade us that no, we don't actually have to do it. And Arjuna sort of says to Krishna, I really think that the higher wisdom is not to fight this battle. And then the whole Bhagavad Gita is why he has to fight the battle. And then more than that, how to fight the battle and what the battle is. So we have to listen. We can't just prefer not to have this be true because it's a prettier, nicer world in which there is no such thing as the devil. But partly what I was saying, I love the, I love the idea of the devil because it helps me recognize that just because it's coming from inside my own head, it doesn't mean that it's guidance and it doesn't mean that it's me. It's just this force. There's this upward moving force, which is God calling me, this downward moving force, which is the satanic force trying to persuade me that I would be happier if I don't follow the divine call. And I like to know that there are two of them. So I don't think, as I said, that they're all just me talking to me. Because otherwise, that's, that satanic force can be very persuasive. And the Gita is very key in this. Arjuna is very persuaded. It's not like he just shakes it off. Krishna has to work with him for quite some time and the whole thing is the Gita. And Krishna finally says to him something like, you know, you're using, because Arjuna justifies. See, Satan doesn't. He's very smart. He justifies it. He explains it. Um, and in, in the case of Arjuna, it was, these are my cousins. It's my own family. I grew up with these people. They're the elders that I respect. It would be wrong to fight them. And yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Except, of course, if you knew everything that had happened prior to that and how they they must at this point. But then Krishna says words to the effect more poetically expressed. You're using words that wise men would use, but you're a fool and a coward, (laughs) he says. And then Arjuna kind of goes, oh, 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 what, what am I doing? You know, he kind of wakes up and he asks Krishna then therefore to tell him, why is he confused? Why why doesn't he see it? What is what is righteousness? And then the whole Gita 
follows. I mean, it's, it was all a divine leela, but it's a divine leela of our experience. And I also think, wow, if Arjuna can get that caught up in it, and then it takes all of Krishna's will to pull him out of it, I need to be very careful with myself. You know, I'm, I'm not Arjuna, and I don't have Krishna holding, you know, I don't have Krishna standing next to me, talking to me. I have to, I have to pay attention before it gets that bad. <laughs> and, but it, if, if it could happen to Arjuna, um, he's also telling us it can happen to any of us, and that this is something we have to take seriously. So let's take a little break. So the next one that we'd already read out loud was number 416, one um, about uh, God does not know evil. And we, we pretty much covered that. But 417, is Satan in that case a part of God? If God made everything, how could Satan exist apart from him? And that's you know, it's sort of a complicated question that Master... He says there there cannot be two absolutes, so um, Satan is a part of God's drama. He says he's necessary to it, as the villain is necessary to the play. He says evil is the veil that conceals God. The magnet and magnet is a very interesting word. The magnet that tries to draw the mind away from him, and that's an interesting force. You know, when he says conscious force. He doesn't mean, Master doesn't necessarily necessarily mean an anthropomorphic force. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's this figure walking around. Although, in fact, evil personifies itself. Just like the divine takes many forms, evil takes many forms too. And the traditional form of the devil exists because it exists. You know, it's, it's been brought into manifestation. But what it is, it's a magnet. It's like we're trying to go this way and it's trying to magnetize us the other way. Good is that which helps to make God's hidden reality manifest. And that's where he says like the breeze blowing across the flame. So it's uh, Satan is part of the drama. And, and the drama, th- this is where you can't really, I can't really express what God's reasoning is. As they say, in order to understand the mind of God, you have to be the mind of God. But the we have to we have to rise to the level of of the divine power in order to experience it we can't just drift that's what i was saying earlier we can't just put out less and less energy like going to sleep and suddenly find ourselves just lifted up into a divine realm a divine the divine realm vibrates at a much subtler more powerful higher vibration than the ordinary human vibrates at. And in order for us to have that state, we have to, be, 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 we have to build our power. And we build our power by, by we, we get strength against resistance. That's what you do when you go to the gym. You get strength against resistance. That's what you get when you, when you jog, when you go into a marathon race, when you, when you discipline yourself to write a book, to do a painting, to raise a child, there's a resistance uh, within us that is trying to pull us to lesser energy and lesser focus. We, we strive against that resistance, and in doing so, we develop this power. There's just no other word for it. You know, this ability to apply ourselves to things. Certainly, 
I mean, again, just think of your own life. I've certainly observed in my own life. I was not a very disciplined or a focused person. And I'm, I still wish I were more so. But I, I, I see, I see in myself now the capacity to just face into it in a way that I didn't have before. And it's because I've fought against that resistance and gradually over time you become stronger. And that's God's drama that he can't just manifest us and then rescue us. We ourselves have to, to rise with the conscious use of our willpower. And so that's where the, the, he, had to, he had to make two forces. Why he did it, I can't say. But he had to for it to work out. But as, as Master says here, um, let's see. Uh, oh, yes. Within the realm of duality, both good, good and evil exist. But God, the su- Supreme Spirit, is beyond them both. And that's what we have to understand, that we, we break out of this, this, this world where there are two forces pushing on us is actually uh, uh, an illusion. It's maya. And on this, this is where we think that this is reality. We think the material plane of duality is actually who we are. But what happens is when we finally raise our vibration high enough, we burst out of duality altogether. And we realize that there was ever and there is ever only the one force of pure bliss. And on that level, Satan is gone. Satan is part of the drama. He's not part of the enduring reality. This is what happens from all the death and return stories we hear, that people imagine that death is some kind of an ending point, that it's some, some kind of evil that's happened to us. But all these people who, who die and then return and I recently I recently came across again because it was offered for free on my Kindle so I took it the book Return from Tomorrow by Dr. Ritchie which I've quoted from many times because it's such a wonderful book so I had it on my Kindle it's a very short book and I was traveling and I just read the whole thing again once again I highly recommend Return from Tomorrow by Dr. Ritchie he just has this extraordinary um, death and return experience but part of it, his story, and then of course when you're on a Kindle, you know, everybody knows what you bought, so you have all the others coming in. So I read a couple of others, and you know, people just, they're about to die, they struggle, they're so afraid, all of this happens. And then suddenly, they're so happy. <laughs> you know, the whole struggle is over. And, they, and when, if they're good people, or even eventually, Dr. Ritchie went, th- I've forgotten that he went through some very dark realms before he got, into the light with Jesus but when you're in that light with Jesus and then Jesus says to you as he did to Dr. Ritchie um, do you want to go back Dr. Ritchie says back to what you know it's like he doesn't even and, and, and in fact he'd been frantic to get back when he first died it was like he, how could he be dead he was just desperately trying to find his body and get back into it part of the confusion was he couldn't figure out which was his body he was in an army hospital this was the uh, the spanish flu right at the end of world war ii which killed tens of thousands of people and he was in a hospital where there were hundreds of soldiers and he couldn't figure out which one was him eventually he found it because he was wearing a ring a characteristic ring but that was his thought he had to get back into his body 
But then finally when he was there with Jesus and Jesus said, you want to go back? He couldn't even remember what he was being asked about, what to speak of having any desire to do it. He was just like, what, do you, what, what would I go back to? Because once we're out of this duality, we realize that it was just a, a play of light and shadow. Master calls it in Samadhi, vanish the veils of light and shade. These are, these are phrases like, I've known that poem. I, I sort of, I go through periods where I know it really well and repeat it really well and then my focus will change a little bit and I'll lose it a little bit and then I go back to it. But I've been, I've been knowing it, you know, dead cold and almost knowing it for, for all of my life, my spiritual life. And I just noticed it says, vanish the veils of light and shade. It doesn't say, vanish the veils of light and darkness, which is actually really interesting because shade is what happens if something blocks the light. It's not the absence of light, it's something that veils the light. And that's what he calls it. It's a veil of shade because outside of this whole creation, light is un, uh, it, unconditioned. It's unconditioned light. But in this plane of duality, something every so often something blocks the light. And blocking the light, it creates this impression of evil. And that's part of the drama. But the evil is a conscious force, and I can't say any more than that, so I'll just leave Master's words. You can read it in the book, that's all I can say. But I know what to do about it. You know, part of it is, I've never, personally, I've never felt the need to intellectually hammer out these ideas beyond a certain point, because I realize at a certain point I'm just blowing in the wind. I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't have an experience that makes it more than intellectual. But I have to bring it to a clear enough focus to know what to do. Because the reason I can't bring it to a clearer focus intellectually is I don't have the realization. But the realization is accessible to me if I know what to do. So I get it as far as I need to to know what to do, which is I know that there is a conscious force that is acting on me, that is trying, that is not in my best interest and is trying to persuade me to act in ways that are not in my best interest. And I can't afford to be casual about that fact. And I can't afford to mess around with that force. Because it's big and it's real. And I can't just indulge it sometimes. I mean, I do indulge it sometimes. We all do. But I don't, uh, I don't believe that's okay. Just because I do things that are not okay doesn't mean they're okay. <laughs> just because I do them. It has to be clear enough. After that, I don't know all the masters promise and I'll just take their word for it. So, okay. So then, I think that's as far as I read. So now we go back to Christian science for a few minutes here. Unless there's any questions or comments that we need to follow. Okay. Number 418. The Christian science teachings derive... Now this is master speaking and he's explaining. And this was all obvious from with some conversation, all of these little segments, Swamiji took notes um, of, of meetings and gatherings with Master. And when Swami published this book, he more or less published the notebook. He had a notebook of all of this. And he more or less published it in sequence. So this is obviously, this seems to be one conversation. As I understand it, he, when he wrote Essence of Self-Realization, when he wrote The Path, he drew also from these notebooks of, of words, 
but he se- he assembled things. But when he finally wrote conversations, it was uh, everything that was left. <laughs> and he himself said he didn't really know how he was going to put it together. But as he said, essentially what he did is he just did it sequentially because the conversations sometimes were went on and on like this one seems to be. So Master's now talking about Christian science. The Christian science teaching derived from an imperfect understanding of... I, I mean, for those people who are watching this who don't even know what Christian science is, one of the characteristics of it is a, a belief that... Uh, I'm not, and I hope I don't present this incorrectly, but basically that God's creation is perfect. And all we have to do is is affirm and cling to that perfection and everything else isn't real isn't really there it's just an illusion um, and so among other things they often Christian scientists don't uh, don't draw on medical doctors because they believe that all healing power is within and part of the way they access that healing power is by this steadfast refusal to acknowledge um, limitation or darkness and and a lot of people can operate that teaching in a very impressive way. But as you'll see, it also has its limitations. So the, the Christian science teachings, Master say, says, derive from an imperfect understanding of the Vedanta teachings. In denying the reality of evil, they open themselves to certain great errors. So that's how Master is explaining it. Um, this, is, this is an anecdote he's telling There was a child whose mother was a Christian scientist. The child came home from school one day and said to his mother, Mommy, Sarah's mother is unwell. The mother responds, You mean she thinks she is unwell? The following day the boy came home and said, Mommy, Sarah's mother is worse. The mother replies, You mean she thinks she is worse? The third day, when the child returned home, his mother asked him, How is Sarah's mother today? Mommy, the little boy replied, She thinks she is dead. <laughs> so, Master, you know, Master was respectful, but only to a point. <laughs> and that's what he says. If you don't acknowledge certain realities, you could open yourself up to very grave errors because reality will intrude upon things. So they can say that to a certain point and then things happen. And I've, I've known a couple of cases, you know, where, uh, and I'm not, I'm not um, casting aspersions, I'm just speaking of this. I mean, one friend of mine, whose mother was a Christian scientist, she became ill with um, MS. And she gradually was in a wheelchair. But the mother never would admit that she had MS or was in a wheelchair. And it it made life confusing for the family because she clearly had MS and she was in a wheelchair, but she had to always affirm that she wasn't. And that's where Master is saying it opens you up to certain grave errors and incomplete understanding of Vedanta because here I am struggling to try to explain how can Satan be real and not be real? How can God be the only reality but Satan exists? So it, it's sincerely meant, and here he speaks about it. Um, uh, Mrs. Eddy, the founder of Christian Science. What's her name? Eddie, I want to say. 
Mary Baker Eddy. Yeah, that was her name. Mary Baker Eddy is the founder of Christian Science. Mrs. Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, was right in saying that her teachings were based on the teachings of Jesus Christ. For Jesus taught the same truths as are found in the Vedanta Transcendentalism, a popular school of thought at that time in New England where Mrs. Eddy lived, um, was actively influenced by the Vedanta teachings. There was a movement contemporaneous with Master in New England of the Transcendentalist, and Emerson and Thoreau were part of that. And it was a very, very influential movement, and it was one of the beginning ways that the Eastern teachings were brought into the West, brought into America. And the transcendentalism was based on, on, the, on the Upanishads and on the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, it wasn't coincident. But they didn't have, uh, she, didn't have, she didn't have a guru in the body with her to help her understand the nuances of it. And she, she was there and she picked this up and then was inspired by God. I mean, she made a big movement that did a lot of good for people does did a lot of good for people and uh, but she didn't have it exactly completely straight Mrs. Eddy found that those teachings helped deepen her understanding of the teachings of Jesus neither Jesus nor the teachings of Vedanta however were the basis for her teaching on the nature of evil so Master is making a distinction here she more or less made that up is what he's saying you know she she studied transcendentalism, she studied Christianity, and then she had her own inspiration about how she would explain it. You know, this is why it's nice to have a self-realized master at the, at, the, at the front or the back or the bottom of what you're doing because people will travel a certain distance up the mountain and they will have accomplished something. I mean, obviously, Mary Baker Eddy had a lot going for her. She had a lot of magnetism and a lot of charisma and a lot of uh, just energy to be able to do what she did. She was a certain distance up the mountain. She could see a lot of the mountain that she'd already climbed. And she could see people behind her. And she wanted to help them come, come up the mountain because she was very happy coming up the mountain. But even you don't always know whether you're at the false peak or the, or the real peak. It can be, uh, you, you, can, you can just not know. So it's nice when the, the source is at the top of the mountain because then he can navigate all the cul-de-sacs. I mean, if you're, if you're walking through uncharted territory, you may think that this road leads you where you're going and you don't understand that it is a dead end or it loops back or it takes you into obstacles that you didn't know were there, might put you to a blank wall so she according to master here um, made up her teachings about evil inspired by other things that she studied both those higher teachings are completely practical see this is the word whereas what mrs eddy taught in this respect was not practical and that might sound like a small word not practical but practical is everything one of the it's, it's, we, we tend to say that Ananda's two guiding principles are people are more important than things and where there is dharma there is victory but actually we have three and the third one is you have to be practical in your idealism 
I've noticed sometimes, especially now that Swami's not here, people get confused because they're not being practical in their idealism. And um, that was something Master said directly to Swami. You must be more practical. And it had to do, and I'm not sure precisely, but I think it had to do with his thinking, his not reading people's spiritual potential correctly because he, he wanted to believe that everybody um, could, could advance and could be part of the ashram. But you have to be practical in your idealism. You have to recognize that some people are, it's, it's not for them. They don't have the destiny for it. And, and with our own selves, we have to be practical in our idealism. We may know that I'm theoretically capable of something, but in fact, I'm not. And, and that's, people get themselves in a lot of trouble because they, they try to set them, they, they define themselves as capable in certain ways. It's just not practical. It's not that it's false. It's just not practical. So he said with her, um, the higher teachings are completely practical. When you, when you study the Bhagavad Gita, it's telling you about complete renunciation and complete transcendence. But the way it teaches you to get there is completely practical. You, you actually have something to do that will actually work for you. Whereas what Mrs. Eddy taught was not completely practical. So there's a person in a wheelchair who's bound by their beliefs to say that they're not in a wheelchair. You know, this is actually, there's another Christian science joke, which is, um, let me think how that would go. Um, a Catholic, a Baptist, and a Christian scientist all found themselves in hell. And all three of them were surprised to be there. So the Catholic thinks, well, gee, maybe I miss Mass one day and I never really, I, maybe I never made that up. And the Baptist says, well, maybe I wasn't completely immersed when I was baptized. And then they turned to the Christian scientist and said, why are you here? And he says, oh, but I'm not. <laughs> so that's the same thing. You are. You have to think about it. Okay. <laughs> Going on about Mrs. Eddy, she had figured out, the Master puts that in quotes, mistakenly in this respect, that evil was not of God and therefore didn't exist. And, you know, she, she'd figured it out mistakenly. This is why Master says, you know, Satan is part of God's drama, the same as the villain has to be part of the play. There has to be this dynamic tension in order for the hero to rise to the occasion and become transformed. Because transformation, transcendence, transformation, realization, is something that we have to, we have to generate the awareness. It's not just, we aren't just rescued. He says this was her own philosophy, and then Master describes the word philosophy is a word that means love of wisdom. He said, it is not necessarily wisdom itself. And so that's why even when they say that this is a philosophy, it's not a philosophy. It's, uh, that's what it, the indigenous name for these teachings is Sanatana Dharma, which means eternal truth. And it also means, my favorite, is that which is. And so Sanatana Dharma is, here we are, what is it? <laughs> and what it is, it's the soul's long journey back to its home in God. And it's this series of conditions that can be mastered by right understanding. And then you have all of the 
scriptures and all of the teachings of all the avatars for, from the beginning of time, all of which describe that which is. And so that's why you can't just have somebody go make up another one because that which is, is that which is. That's why Master said, that's why he, he, I believe he just called it Kriya. Kriya just means action. It's like he didn't make up some big name for it. It's, it's an action which leads to liberation. And uh, that's why Master said, Jesus and his disciples practice Kriya or something very like it. Because that's what you have to do. You have to be able to raise the kundalini. You have to be able to um, clear the karma from the chakras. You have to be able to lift your concentration to the spiritual eye. It's, it's not a matter of opinion. And it's not philosophy, which is the love of wisdom. It is not, uh, philosophy is not necessarily wisdom itself. What both Jesus and the Vedanta taught was wisdom, the direct experience of truth. That's what uh, Sanatana Dharma is. It's the direct experience of truth. And Mary Baker Eddy must have had some experience or else she wouldn't have had that magnetism, but she didn't have the full experience. So things worked for her to a certain extent and then she thought they were absolute truths. I'm, I myself, these things matter. Um, it doesn't happen as much now, but it used to happen 20 years ago more when a, a lot of new age philosophy was really just getting started. And a lot of it was, you know, taken to a certain extent from Christian science and a lot of it was the reactive process that I was talking about against certain things. So I can be anything good that I want to be. I can be healthy, I can be rich, I can have a perfect relationship. You know, I can buy my will because God wants me to be happy and all, all of creation is God's and just all of these things when there's no Satan. Um, I can be whatever I want to be. But when people try to be that, they often find that they can't. I, I remember a, a woman friend who eventually died from the cancer she had, but her cancer was serious enough that serious medical treatment was required. And she um, was, uh, you know, she, she was not inclined towards such a, uh, uh, an invasive allopathic route. And so she was considering whether she could heal herself by other means. So she, she was asking Swami about it, and this is practical in your idealism. And she was talking about diet or affirmations or right attitude or prayer. I don't know, I wasn't present. But it was something, some alternative. And Swami just looked at her with great, great force and said, do you have the concentration and discipline to heal yourself? And it was like, yeah, you could, but do you have the concentration and discipline to do it? And of course, the way he asked her, she had to say, no, I don't. It's a theory, but I don't have it. So it wasn't even that it was untrue, it just wasn't practical. And uh, so when people were being told that they could do all of these things just by affirming, I used to get what I used to call refugees from the new age. And they would sort of come and they were feeling like they were failures because they were still coughing or they still had their asthma or they hadn't gotten a million dollars or they were still single or they'd just gotten divorced. And I would have to explain to them that 
the teaching wasn't completely true. And that was the problem, that there were elements of it that were true, but it wasn't practical, what was being said to them. And, and so, no, they hadn't failed at all. You, you can't take a flawed system. And, I mean, some people can still make it work, but it's not automatic that it's going to work. Now, self-realization, as Master teaches us, everybody will eventually realize God. But there's no promise that says you'll do it today and it won't be difficult. It's just it can be done. And even further, it will be done. But as to when and how is something that's left to us. <laughs> okay. Thank you all very much. So let's see what we talked about tonight. We talked, we went from 4.15 through 4.18. Okay.